Hey everybody, this is That Girl with the Curls, it's Sam, and bringing you another wonderful episode, uh, a little bit ahead of time. Uh, there's some time-sensitive material here on episode 23, which is Sienna Morris, and uh, I really wanted to get this out before uh, what she talks about later on in the episode uh, it has run out. So um, for those who don't know, Sienna Morris is a, a painter, an artist, uh, focuses a lot on um, scientific theorems and uh, you basically incorporating math into her art. It's called numberism, and it's really cool, and uh, eventually I will have a piece of my own someday, perhaps sooner than later, I don't know. Um, keep you updated on that one. But uh, yeah, Sienna is really awesome. She's uh, she's just so full of uh, ideas and thoughts and stuff, which, you know, go figure. Uh, and so we get into a lot of different things. Uh, we talk about fandom and math and science and uh, the state, you know, of the of those um, fields for women and for men as well. So it's a really great episode. I had so much fun talking to her. And uh, again, anyone who ever comes on this podcast is always welcome. But Sienna was also just really awesome to talk to. So I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, again, episode 23 of That Girl with the Curls. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at darling underscore Sammy. You can also go to maniacalgeek.com and uh, see where the podcast is, as well as the articles that I write and my friend Kara, who does Kara Reads Books. And uh, yeah, you can also listen to the podcast on SoundCloud at uh, soundcloud.com slash thatgirlwiththecurls. So yeah, again, enjoy the episode. doing pretty good pretty good today yeah um so i guess to just get things going um i i first met you at rose city comic-con uh where you were displaying your wares and uh, and then saw you again at geek girl con and um do you want to uh explain what uh, what it is that you sell to people <laughs> sure yeah um so i um it's weird explaining visual art um <laughs> and audio but it's always fun um so i draw entirely with numbers and equations by hand mm -hmm. um and the data that i use is significant so i primarily um draw from uh, using data inspired by science and mathematics awesome yeah and you call it what numberism yes numberism it's like pointillism where they draw with dots i just use numbers mm -hmm. and letters instead <laughs> and um I, I think what when i first saw that stuff because it from a distance, I mean, it's like any painting, you know, you, uh, you see one thing, like, I think the, the heart painting was the first one I ever saw, um, like going up to the booth. And then when you get up close and you see all those numbers and you're just like, oh my God, look at that. That one's one of my more complex pieces too. So that one's a really cool one to, to yeah. see go from a, a drawing into numbers. That one took me seven months to draw actually. Really? Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, if we'll, we'll, we'll go back a little bit. So what, what led you to, uh, to doing this kind of artwork? I mean, do you have a science background or was it an art background first that led into science? Like, um, I guess what's the origin story of numberism? 
I like that. I like origin story. Um, <laughs> I don't have an official background in math, science, or art, actually. Ooh. I'm um, self-taught in all of it. I've been an artist for my whole life, basically, mm-hmm. and I got interested in studying science a few years after school. Um, it's actually probably mostly due to my husband. He's a self-taught theoretical um, physicist. Wow. Um, he's also an engineer and a designer and an artist and a musician. He's you know one of those crazy people who can do just everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most importantly, he's also a storyteller. And so he would talk to me about how what his views of the universe were, and it was fascinating because it was it was really presented in this entertaining, engaging story. Um, but for him to be able to give me his ideas of how the universe worked, he first had to talk to me about um, sort of pre-existing theories. And uh, I got introduced to lots of quantum physics through him. And um, as an artist, a creative type, once you're interested, introduced to quantum physics, you can't really walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because it's fun. I mean, that's basically the, the source of, of most science fiction that you love, which I love science fiction, mm-hmm. is quantum physics and physics. Um so I got interested in that, and um, for me to be more part of the conversation, I started learning more on my own about science, and um, and it kept going. And being that I have no math background or science background, it's really important that I do something with the data, or else everything that I've tried so hard to learn just goes away, which is incredibly frustrating. So, yeah, I can, uh, I can uh, relate to that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it makes sense. So, I mean, I'm an artist, so it makes sense that I use my art. Um, and that's how I sort of traverse science. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so was the, had you like, like just been mostly like doodling kind of art or did you do paintings prior to, um, uh, learning about like quantum physics and whatnot? Uh, like what was your artistic style prior to this? Before numberism? Yeah. Um, I did just about everything. I actually did quite a bit of design. We had a multimedia company, so we did websites a lot. We did, um, commercials. I did, I illustrated some book covers. I did painting um and I had struggled for a long time trying to make it as an artist and we did everything we could to make ends meet mm-hmm. it wasn't until I started doing numberism that I was actually able to support myself on my artwork um which was a surprise um I started doing numberism because I needed it so actually I probably should have mentioned this um when I started doing numberism it wasn't math and science I was originally drawing with the numbers of the clock one through twelve yeah um, um I I have one of your pieces the Wonder Woman piece yeah. Yeah, that uh, is just the the numbers of the clock and I was showing it to a friend of mine and then also showed her the the more complex uh paintings like I, I guess as as you grew as an artist. Um so yeah, I mean keep, keep going there. I'm sorry. <laughs> like interrupted no, that right. story. <laughs> <laughs> So this whole process sort of evolved over time. Um, in the beginning, it was out of need. Um, when I started doing numbers in my life, was just a mess, actually. Everything had just recently fallen apart. Mm-hmm. I had nothing. Um, and I'm a highly critical person, so I was in this really bad spot. And all I could do is look at everything I had failed at and was a terrified about being able to succeed again at all in anything. And uh, numberism is what pulled me out of it. So I, what I did was I started, originally I was drawing with the numbers of the clock, 1 through 12, out of anxiety. And so it was to represent how I felt that it was slipping away from me and there was no getting it back. Um, mm-hmm. And then sort of accidentally I did um, a drawing entirely with numbers and it was falling to pieces. And that was, um, and I thought it was an anxiety piece, um, but it wasn't. It, it, was, um, it was actually beautiful and therapeutic. And it was a, it's an illustration of a, the moment where my husband and I were reunited after being separated for a year. Mm. And um, I illustrated that moment because um, that was an easy moment to be there for and one that um, was so rewarding to be there for. And mm-hmm. I thought, 
if only I could live like that every moment. Um, and drawing it helped me and looking at it later helped me. And so I kept doing that. Um, and it helped me regain my life. Um, this sounds (laughs) maybe a bit too big, but numberism pulled me out of a really bad place. And Mm -hmm. the, I, most importantly, because I found that I wasn't alone with what I was going through. People who I showed my work to responded really well to it. They started buying it, which was great because yeah. I was broke. Um, and so I just kept doing it. And people kept supporting me and asking me to draw more things. Um, and so that's where it started. The math and science series came later. Um, but yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing because when, as I've been talking to more people, like anxiety tends to come up as a... Um, as a factor in in a lot of things that, you know, creative people end up doing, whether out of, you know, we have the anxiety and we need to relieve it in some way, or the anxiety is is driving us towards something. So it's really, uh, it's interesting uh, how many people have to deal with this in their own particular way. And I mean, your way was uh, eventually finding this this thing that's now, you know, a, a huge part of your life and connects with a bunch of other people as well. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, I think that's why um, a lot of artwork that's in, sort of inspired or comes from anxiety ends up being successful mm-hmm. is, first of all, that's generally speaking a sincere source of inspiration. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I find that if you're creating artwork from a sincere place, then it's just generally speaking people see that. Um, but secondly, it's something people can relate to. So the, the fear of losing time or, or uh, being nervous, being social, all these things are, are things that other people can relate to. So I don't know, I think that's why this, it succeeds. It, the moment you create it, it shows everyone else that they are not alone. It's not just you. You're not being alone. It's the viewer is no longer alone as soon as they see it. If that makes sense? No, it, it totally does. Like, I mean, anxiety is a is definitely an emotion that we all share, that we've all experienced in, you know, whatever form. I mean, I... I, in the last year, have gone through, like, huge anxiety issues. Like, most of it has to do with driving my car. Um, Ah. So it makes it difficult when you want to, like, get places sometimes on the freeway and you're just afraid you're going to pass out, you know, in your your car somewhere. That sounds sounds tough. Oh, yeah. It's it's a fun, fun thing for all to be had. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so when you can kind of, like, feel that connection to something where you know that you know, the other person experienced the same thing. It, it is that connecting factor between the two of you, something you can either share in the story or have that visceral feeling like, oh my God, they, they know what it is that, you know, I've been experiencing too. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think that's half of what any art form is, um, maybe even more so. So the portion of it is the artist creating it and the rest of it is how it's received by the audience. And if, if they're not a part of it, then the art isn't done basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I know. Um, so as you started advancing into the more, uh, scientific areas, I mean, was that just based on requests that people were giving to you or was it just like, Hey, I'm interested in these things that, you know, your husband is talking about and now I want to, you know, take those equations. Like, was it, did it just form out of like, okay, I'm going to take the equations or were you trying to find another angle with it? Well, by the time that I started drawing numberism, I had been studying science on my own for a couple of years. Okay. So it's actually kind of strange that it took me so long to start drawing with math and science because it was something I was actively working on anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of a slow progression. Um, people did ask me, you know, do you have anything with Pi? Do you have anything with Fibonacci? Um, which may have been part of the, the inspiration. The um, 
I think I had started getting more in depth into my study and I needed something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, because it was just going to sit there and I write notes and I'm a big study hog. I love learning and making notes and highlighters and <laughs> flashcards and I like tasks because I'm a crazy person. No, no, go ahead. Um, <laughs> but it still wasn't going to go anywhere beyond that. Um, anyway, the, the first piece I did with uh, math and science was the Fibonacci's snail, mm-hmm. which was basically for fun. I thought, how cool would it be to draw the Fibonacci sequence representing the golden spiral in a place that you actually see that golden spiral live in the real world? Mm -hmm. I thought, that's fun. Um, And I drew it for fun, um, but I found that there was this stronger connection with me and that data. Okay. Um, Uh, Can you explain, like, what that connection is? Or, I mean, is it it something you can even explain? (laughs) It is kind of hard to explain. It's sort of... So, sometimes when you learn something, you walk away with some general gist or idea with it that stays with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're always aware that at any point you could potentially lose it because you're not using it. Yeah. Um, by drawing the Fibonacci sequence in that way, by, by doing numberism, it, for me, it feels like the, the math and science is continuously living and is continuously an active part of my life, <clears throat> especially because I, I, explain the work to others so often, I show it to people so often, that it continues being reincorporated into my life. No, that's really, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's a great way of, of, you know, applying that knowledge and, and keeping it very, like you said, very much alive, um, not just on the, uh, on the uh, canvas, but just in the people who see it and, and relate to it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a history major. Uh, so it's always important to me to like I, I'm reading the reading different history books or even if it's fiction or something like that, and then trying to find a way of utilizing that either my ways of researching something or the knowledge that I've acquired through some book because yeah after a while you've you've just read all of these books and you're like well well now what am I going to do with that am I going to write a paper am I going to do a lecture or something like that so I can I can completely understand the desire to, to use knowledge that you've acquired in some way. <laughs> yeah. I think that creating something is the, in any way is the best way of, um, I don't know, proving to your brain that you know it. And I think creative, uh, creating something is an important part of the, the learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got into some of the headier parts of science that I was studying, you're talking about really big concepts that are difficult to keep in mind. You're talking about, you know, numbers that go into the billions, you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, um, astrophysics and quantum physics, and this is really heady stuff, and it's really easy to get lost in it, and so with the numbers and drawings at that point, there were sort of more like roadmaps, mm-hmm. and they're really important, they, they anchored me down into the data as I got into more and more complex stuff that I didn't want to lose, so it became not just something that was fun, but something that was important, like it's a necessary part of my process. Yeah, um... <laughs> Did you ever feel like overwhelmed in trying to explain it to people as well? Like not just not the numberism part, but when you're going into the details of the actual like theorems and numbers that you're using in the paintings. Sometimes, yes. Uh, <laughs> the, in particularly, in particular, uh, universal proprioception. Okay, um, you have to you have to explain that one to me at least. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can try. Um, in three sentences or less. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a challenge. So the. <clears throat> the drawing is it's of me mm-hmm. and I'm basically made of galaxies and this piece was meant to continue to inspire me to study science um, even when it was getting very difficult and I was getting um, confused or feeling more challenged than reward mm-hmm. um, 
And so I drew some of the most challenging physics that I would like to someday understand in relation to astrophysics in space um, in a, an environment that naturally has a lot of inspiration for me, which is space, mm-hmm. um, in, using Hubble images. So uh, proprioception um, is important for basically knowing how your body you know, moves through space. Mm-hmm. Um, so balance and things like that. Um, or physical identity. If you were to expand that idea to the entire universe, the idea would be to know the universe as well as you know yourself, like the back of your hand, that sort of concept. Oh, cool. And that's the that's the really big dreamy um, goal of mine is to be able to look around the universe at no matter what it is and understand um, what's going on underneath mm-hmm. as well as, you know, you know yourself. So this is a long explanation. I'm so sorry. I'm no, trying my best. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, I was kidding about the three sentences. You can take <laughs> I don't a, think I can do that. You can take as many this. sentences as you want. <laughs> okay. So, and I will try to keep it short, but the, the front of my face is drawn with questions. Um, these are questions that propel me to study. They're questions that won't let me sleep, and they're questions that demand that I learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, things like... Um, what shape is the universe? How old is it? Are we alone in the universe? How did consciousness emerge? Um, will the universe experience a big you know, crunch or a big freeze? Um, there's about 50 questions in there. Mm-hmm. And as you move farther back along my face, it's uh, equations for firing neurons. So it goes into the next phase, which is questions into sort of neurological activities so, of um, the science of thought. The top of my head and my nebular shoulder is the gene, is a triple alpha process, which is nuclear fusion of elements and stars, which is my way of um, reminding the viewer and myself that we are star stuff. So if we are <laughs> going to um, be attempting to understand the universe, what we are doing is understanding ourselves. Um, and then everything behind me is science I'd like to better understand. Um, some of it I have a pretty good understanding of. Some of it I expect I'll be studying for the rest of my life and may not ever fully understand. Yeah. But the uh, the experience in trying to is rewarding. So, and you have things like um, the Drake equation, which is a really fun one. That's pro- a probability equation for life in the universe that can send and receive communications like our own, given different variables. Um, Hubble's constants back there, the Schwarzschild radius, the gene sensibility equation. Um, the Einstein field equation, so that's one of those things that I feel like I will be struggling with for forever. <laughs> <laughs> I think most scientists uh, would agree with you. <laughs> it's a really uh, complicated calculus, and I'm a little person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's, there's lots back there, um, and then you see what I'm looking at is the Andromeda galaxy, which is our nearest neighbor, mm-hmm. and eventually we will, we will merge with the Andromeda galaxy. And it's drawn with this really basic, simple data. Um, such as its coordinates, its distance. Um, in, in this case, it's, it's blue shifted toward, towards us, so it's its blue shift, um, its luminosity, its density, mm-hmm. the mass of a supermassive black hole, things like that. And this is all basic data. Um, and you see me just staring at it and absorbed in, in the data and in the, in the beauty of the image. And you see behind me is the rest of the universe, which I'm not even paying attention to and I may not even know is there. Mm-hmm. And that represents where I feel I am right now in studying science. It's the beginning. So far in the beginning, I couldn't possibly know where it would lead. That is, that is really cool. I mean, like, and because I, mean, I have like the most basic knowledge of, of science in terms of like, you know, going to school and everything. Um, and some stuff I've like, I have a couple of books by like Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, um, Stephen Hawking and everything. But there are certain concepts where I look at that and be like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to quite, like, condense it for myself. Like, you know, find a way for it to make sense to me. Um, whereas, I mean, and you're talking about the even bigger things. Like, you know, the it's not even just the, 
you know, why are we here? It's just the, like, how big is everything? How small is everything? You know, where is it all going? And, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, do these, these questions, like, keep you up at night? Or by putting them into the paintings, do you feel like you kind of, like, um, let them go a little bit? I don't think there's any stating big questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, <laughs> no matter how you go about it. I also think that those big, unanswerable, ridiculous questions that a lot of times you see being picked up by science fiction writers and artists are the same kind of questions that fuels our entrance into the future, basically, mm-hmm. into future technology and scientific achievement. Um, but, those, I mean, it's easy to get lost in those. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, they fuel me. They keep fueling me, and they don't. They don't ever let me go. <clears throat> Sometimes I feel like I may have a pretty good understanding or an idea, and then it just goes right away, and I'm back to the question. <laughs> no, it, that yeah, that can be definitely frustrating. You're just like, okay, I think I've got. I think I've got it, and nope, I do not. <laughs> it's like, and it went away again. <laughs> There's good progress, but <clears throat> you never forget that you'll never be done. Mm-hmm. You'll never ever be done, and there's two sides of that one that's the best thing ever to know that you're involved with something that um you will be working on for the rest of your life that will constantly be giving you more um Mm -hmm. they'll be giving you more questions and more answers and more excitement um and and that's something that will be going on long past you when you're done with this life um and the other side is frustrating (laughs) (laughs) because it's like building a lego castle and never getting to see it done yeah, like someone keeps coming over and like smashing it in front of you and you have to keep rebuilding or something. Uh, yeah, that's actually a good analogy, yeah. It, yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 the same on, uh, I, I guess, on the historical side for me where it's just, it's like this constant, like, I'm never going to be able to know everything. And that is both liberating and at the same time so frustrating because I, I want to go beyond like the things that I, I studied in college and just like know all the things basically in, in <laughs> as many capital letters as possible. But it's like, I'm only one person. I can only read a book so fast before, you know, I get tired or something like that. Um, oh, I cannot wait for the future where they suddenly finally put together a tech where you can download books into your brain. Oh my God. That would be like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> I would still probably sit down and read books just because the experience is wonderful, Mm -hmm. but oh my goodness. Although I wouldn't want to be in the testing phase of that because (laughs) as science fiction has taught me in the first, oh, let's say 50 years of any kind of technology, there's bound to be terrible ramifications. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. You no, know, my uh, a, a really good friend of mine. We we always talk about like the transporter from uh, um, Star Trek. So it's like oh, the one that destroys you every time. Pretty much, it's like you know if if I ever lived to see a teleporter or a transporter, I would still never use it. I would want to watch the next like half a million people use it before I even thought about it. <laughs> well, even when it's been there for a long time, the basic idea of the um of the teleporter, sorry, my brain isn't working now, mm-hmm. is it, it completely breaks you down on an anatomical scale and then builds you back up again. Yeah. Um, that does mean that it killed you <laughs> and then recreates you. And being that we don't really understand what or where consciousness is or mm-hmm. how it works, um, there is a very good chance that if we had that technology here, that would very much mean you die every time and somehow come back. But you may not be the same person anymore. When you go into that, they, that may be the end for you. 
Oh, that, see, that would, I don't know if they ever did that on Star Trek, like, someone gets transported so many times that they, they start, their, their personality starts altering and everything. Like, no, that's, that's really fascinating stuff, like, um, it, and just even the idea of, like, well, if you subscribe to the theory of multiple Earths and, you know, like, you know, the string theory kind of stuff, uh, where every decision you make has a, a different outcome on a different, you know, Earth that's very much like our own kind of thing. Like, many worlds. Oh yeah, many worlds. Because uh, um, I did. A, I remember doing a paper on. Um, what was it? Gio, uh, Giordano Bruno, uh, and he talked about the idea of the the theory of multiple Earths, um, which got him, you know, kind of uh, caught by the Inquisition and whatnot. So, <laughs> not their most uh, favorite or popular guy, oddly enough. Mm, uh, no ideas can be scary. It really is. I mean, it's it's amazing how you look at the the history of science. And, uh, and and how many theories, you know, were quelled or squashed or something like that because, you know, the church didn't like it or people were too scared to even think that big at that point. And uh, how long it took us to, to get to a certain point because we were just like, okay, we're ready now. <laughs> and... It's a it's, um, fascinating and really horrible experience reading about the history of how scientific advancement has been stymied from, from religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and from people in power. Um, gosh, just the library exam- of Alexandria still bothers me. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, let's burn it down. <laughs> I don't know. So we think that we're free of that now because we're in the modern world. But humans have a tendency to think that the problems that we came from are problems that are you know behind us. Yeah. Um, I think that those same reactions to to stop scientific progress, to stop um, exploration because of fear, that's still there because that originated from um, a human reaction to the unknown mm-hmm. and something we still have to watch out for. We, we can hold ourselves back. We're doing some really amazing things right now, um, so we seem to be pushing past that, but it's still there. It's something we have to watch out for. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely, like, especially with, like, stuff with the Hadron co- you know, Collider and everything. I mean, people were freaked out of their minds like we were going to create a black hole and suck ourselves into it or something like that. <laughs> kind of like, guys, I'm pretty sure we're not going to make that. There's, like, redundancies and really smart people working on this. I mean, hopefully. Maybe for some interesting news. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we all just kind of wake up and we've been sucked into a, a, a world of nothing. <laughs> or end up on the other side, you know, like in Interstellar or something like that. I still haven't seen that. You haven't? No, it's, I, I, I've been really. This is a really busy time of year for me, and mm-hmm. I've been busy preparing the Sherlock Holmes piece. So I haven't, unless I've been at Portland Saturday Market, I have not been out of my house. Basically, uh, is it so. a movie that you're you're interested in seeing, or are you kind of skeptical yes. of it? Um, well, so I've heard opinions from both sides to the point where I have to see this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just based on what you were talking about, I was just feel like she's got to have seen Interstellar. Like we can talk about black holes. You know, it's like ah, damn. Uh, I have no excuse really. Even being busy, I should have gone out and seen that. It's only three hours out of your life. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Why not? Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson apparently thought the science was really sound. So, uh, which makes me want to see it. Yeah. You know? co- was it? I, I, res- I respect that man's um, opinions quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. were you watching a Cosmos at all? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a dumb question, but <laughs> so I loved the original Cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Sagan is a huge inspiration to me. 
that piece I talked about earlier, Universal Proprioception, mm-hmm. I, I rewatched Cosmos while I was drawing that. Carl Sagan's name is hidden within that drawing. Oh, Quotes that's from so cool. him are hidden within that drawing. Well, just I even though Cosmos, we are star stuff that you said, I mean, that yeah. immediately reminded me of him. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely taken from him. Um, anyway, he, um, I, I think a Cosmos, the, the original series, uh, was really important to, um, bring scientific education to the forefront of basically common people, mm-hmm. the average person into their living room and to show that it's this beautiful, fascinating thing. And that it's not beyond them to understand it, which is, I think the most frustrating, um, assumption from most people is that it's beyond them. Yeah. Science is beyond them. Math is beyond them. And that's what we sort of, um, we've convinced lots of us is, um, that you either have a creative brain or you have a mathy brain and, um, not to expect much from you. It, the co- cosmos now with Neil deGrasse Tyson being um, shown in prime time mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with amazing, beautiful special effects. Um, I, I thought it was hugely important that it happened. I, a friend of mine the other day told me that he watched it. Um, he, he's been interested in then learning more about science because he hangs out with us a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's um, been introduced to a lot, uh, many new concepts since we met. But he says the biggest reason he's watching it is because it's just so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It's gorgeous. I mean, and, and the fact that CGI has gotten us to a point where we can, I think, you know, it's not like Carl Sagan didn't explain things well enough, but, you know, I feel like society has become so much more visual um, in terms of how we, we process information now. And for the technology to be where it's at, I think that Neil deGrasse Tyson is is capable, you know, not just because he's really good at kind of distilling huge concepts down to a point where, you know, people can understand the basics of it, but you also have that visual element that really can stress, like, okay, this is what I'm actually talking about right here. Yeah. Um, actually, I think that we've always really needed a good visual environment for education. Mm-hmm. Um and because of tech, we get to, to really fully play with that and push the, the limits to, to how we can um, introduce big, complex concepts to, to people who it's new to. Um, so, I don't know. It's, it's tapping into something that's important to the human brain. So, mm-hmm. the fact that um, advances in tech can, can improve um, the ability for just the general public to learn science is so cool. It's just it's so cool. It re- no, it really is. And, I mean... Just you know, going along that those lines, I mean, with with numberism, I mean, you're you're doing a, a similar thing in, in in many regards, where you're taking an equation and creating a, a piece of art that represents it, uh, and then also there's an explanation of it on the back uh, of the painting. Uh, so you're giving people kind of like, here's the visual, here's the numbers, and here's here's the explanation, you know, just just in case. <laughs> it's important that everyone always gets the science whenever they get my art. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I what I do with my numberism is important to me personally with my education. Mm-hmm. It's also big, in, it, and this may sound a bit strange, but it's I realize that it has an effect on other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen that that for some people who have only ever experienced math and science in this really um, boring, rote, frustrating, anxiety-driven world, they get to see math and science presented in a way that um, speaks to them, that, that shows it's, it's beautiful and it shows that it attaches to their life. Um, and first of all, I'd have to say that I think that most people know that math and science is beautiful. They, mm-hmm. they know that it's part of their world and they know that, it's, that it's, it is inherently of them. 
Yeah. Math and science is inherently of them, so it can't be beyond them. Um, but their experience with it in day-to-day life sort of pushes them away from it. Um, so that's become part of my inspiration with my pieces is to find new ways to show people who, I guess, like, I guess especially those who would be really adamantly against the idea that they would ever be good at math or science or that math and science would ever be interesting to them, mm-hmm. to show them um, the inherent beauty in there. No, and I, I think that's a that's a noble purpose as well because we, we definitely, I mean, especially with with girls, I mean, it's it's not a secret that it's uh, more difficult for some girls to get into those industries because they feel like that they're um, either left out or they're not encouraged to do it. Um, and so I think it's it's really important that uh, I mean boys as well, but you know, getting you know kids and and people of of pretty much all ages uh, looking at science and going like, no, no, it's not beyond you. It's, uh-huh. it's right there in front of you. You just have to kind of, uh, see it from another angle or, uh, experience it in a different way. Uh, I think it's important to, um, and I agree with you with the fact that there's not enough women in the professional field of math and science. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been that long, um, since we've, really made big strides of, of uh, equality with women in the workplace yeah. and with education. And not that long ago, women weren't allowed to have a full education. So the idea that those underlying concepts um, of women being less intelligent or less capable than men, the idea that that would just be gone from our society is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, we are making big progress, but this has been ingrained in our society. Um, and you see it having effects. I think the biggest one is what is expected of a girl yeah. and what is expected of a boy. Um, and that's just shown in our daily habits. You know, the kind of toys that we give the girls versus the kind of toys we give the boys. We don't tend to give girls Legos. Mm-hmm. We don't tend to give girls chemistry sets or telescopes. Um, there are those who get those things. Um, but generally speaking, those kind of toys are, are given to boys. Mm-hmm. And that may not seem like an important distinction, but the first step with getting interested in studying science is playing with it. And I've said this before, but playing with science is where it starts. Yeah. And they don't show us playing. The closest they get is, like, easy bake ovens. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I guess, chemistry. <laughs> yeah, right? Like they do that, and they look, well, here, some biology with babies that pee. Um, <laughs> Learn human terrible. anatomy. <laughs> yeah. Here's a Ken doll. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, no, it's it, it's entirely one of those things where because uh, when I grew growing up, I was a uh, I still am a tomboy, um, so I was as much into I guess the girly stuff, which was all the pink and you know it, mostly pink. Uh, but then you have the boy stuff. Uh, I mean, quote unquote boy stuff. Now we're 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 still trying to work out of, um, and I love the fact that over in England they're they're trying to really. Uh, do a good job of um, eliminating the gender binaries in toys um, and being just like, no, toys are for children and it shouldn't be a color-coded um, gender-specific thing. Like, if girls want to play with, you know, sports and action figures, fine. If boys want to play with easy-bake ovens, yes, we shouldn't be judging them at the age of five based on what they're playing with. That's awesome. I didn't know they were doing that. Yeah, it's uh, as far as I know, it's just the UK right now. I mean, we, if you go no Toys R Us, obviously here in the states, it's still very much here's the boy section, here's the girl section, and you can tell by the colors. <laughs> I was, and this may sound strange, but I was personally offended when I was a child and the toys that were available to me. It mm-hmm. always seemed like they were talking down to me. 
Yeah. Um, people wanted to give me these these babies and these girls in pink. I never owned a Barbie doll. I oh, really? warned people that I, I did not want a Barbie doll. I did not want a little baby. And one year, um, I think my mom's boyfriend got me one, and I shaved it and nailed it to a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't like the idea that people people expected something of me. From when I was a kid, people started telling me who I was and what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to do it, and I never felt that that was true mm-hmm. with, with any of those things. And the whole world was going along with this. And a lot of my friends and family that I saw absolutely went with that. They go, this is what's expected of you. This is the kind of person you are. When you, and the, when with questions like people, when I was six or seven years old, um, my friends were talking about, you know, when they were going to get married and to who and what their dress would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had lots of male friends and that would never, ever, ever be something that was brought up. Um, and it just felt like when I was a little, little child that the, the world was choosing my life for me mm-hmm. and that involved being a mom, um, and a girly girl and there's just so much more that we can do this day and age. So, oh yeah. De- I mean, I totally agree. Like, I mean, I had, uh, I had Barbies, but they played with my Ninja Turtles and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, was it, I, I had a Ken doll and I ended up, um, you know, I, I don't know what message I sent to my mother and my father, but I ended up tearing the head off. Um, because you know, the Barbie dolls had the, the removable heads, like, cause they had that nubbin kind of thing yeah. <laughs> and you could take the head off. So I, being the person that I am, assumed that Ken's head would do the same thing because if heads are interchangeable, why not? But no, Ken's <laughs> head was like fastened on by something else. I don't even know what it was, but <laughs> should have put it on a pike outside of Barbie's dream house. <laughs> you That's... may not enter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with having had Barbies or playing with Barbies. I, I think I, I have a thing where if, if something really bothers me, I get really passionate and always have, and I tend to stand up and fight, damn it. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's one of those things where, you know, like like I said, I'm I'm a tomboy, so there are, there are things that I do where I feel like I have to explain it to people, but it's like, no, I don't. I'm, I'm also 30 years old. I don't have to explain anything to anybody at this point in my life. And, and even growing up, you know, those pressures that were put under to adhere to a specific, you know, role or something like that is all based on either what we see on television or what our family and friends are in some ways reinforcing on us. And I think what's great about now especially is that we're we're starting to really break out of that in terms of how we're, you know, indoctrinating children into society, um, which hopefully will will work to their benefit because I would hate to raise a generation of children who are just, like, completely dumbfounded as to who they're supposed to be at all. <laughs> like, I, I think that when you show people the the lengths of their potential, they're, they're bound to do something great with it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I'm excited. I, I think we have a lot of work to do, and this isn't just about women. Yeah. Um, generally, the way that we um, present some kinds of education, like math and science, to our public is pretty screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way in which we make it accessible to certain groups within our culture um, sort of shows that they're not welcome. And it, it continuously does that throughout um, the educational career of that person and then as they go into the professional world. And that's true for women, and that's true for quite a few minorities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that same idea where the world, um, our world turns them and us and says, this is what we expect of you, this is what we don't expect of you. Um and if, if you 
with you. And if you try to be involved in this world of science, we're going to make it difficult for you, and you have to prove yourself the entire way. And I'm all for proving yourself for when it comes to your ability and what you can do and what you can add to um, the environment. But if that proving proving yourself um, is presented in a way that's meant to push you out um, and limit your ability to learn and to um, give back into the community, then that's just awful. Yeah, it's like we, we should just be utilizing minds. It shouldn't matter, you know, who they belong to. It's just like, we want your brains. Like Yes, more brains, please. More brains. <laughs> that, that should be another piece, just do the Abby Normal thing from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. I actually have a whole series planned for the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figure that concept is so big, there's no way I'll be able to do just one drawing. Oh, yeah. So I'll probably end up doing a couple just for fun about the brain as well, and maybe I should do that. Yeah, you should do that. <laughs> and I'll buy it and hang it on my wall. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, did you ever watch the TV show Numbers? Uh, did you? Yes. Okay, I was just, I, I, I was curious because I seem to be in the small minority of people who was watching it that I knew, you know, people I that I loved it. Are you kidding? Oh. So they bring in a mathematician to help solve crime. I know. And it didn't. Because they used game theory all the time. And so, I'm sorry, but so many times they had real math and science up on those boards that mm-hmm. would actually apply to what was going on. Yeah. It, so much fun. It was no, it was great. It was like one of those shows where you know, it's, it, you know, David Krumholtz playing Charlie wasn't hard to look at either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like so, it helps a little bit. Uh, but no, it was great. Like how they again, like the whole idea of visualizing the mathematics uh, in a way that was um, still keeping you know Charlie on the side of a teacher, but also making it easy enough for like the viewing audience to watch it as well and be like, oh, okay, I see with the sprinkler th- and the thing, and okay, <laughs> it's like, that's funny. I remember the sprinkler so well. Yeah, it, it, well, it's the pilot episode, so you're just kind of like, oh right, yep. Um, cause yeah, like when he would start diving into things like the Fibonacci sequence and game theory and all that stuff, you know, things that you you hear about. Um, and, and in some cases, you know, people will understand, but then when they go in depth and you're just kind of like, oh, okay, that's how you do that. Or, or just finding a, you know, something that you wouldn't think would have a mathematical application, I guess, in the, in the real world, quote unquote. Um, I think the show did a tremendous amount of, of goodwill towards mathematics for a lot of people. Oh, they did. I wish more people had, um, watched it, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> I also wish that it kept going. Um. But media is one of the best ways of, of um, changing the expectations of a nation. Yeah, <laughs> We're media people. We love TV. We love movies. Um, so I think it's a, a great place to start the change. Um, that show showed that math isn't just equations. It showed, it showed the equation, and then it showed it living. It showed it doing something in our real world. And there's this really weird underlying, I guess, misconception about math where it's just this dead thing. Mm-hmm. If, you know, it just lives in numbers on a textbook in a classroom where you get to have sweaty palms and fear. Um, <laughs> and it's just not true, and it's never been true. Mm-hmm. Um, math is baseball and and um, bullets and music and the human body and sex, you know, and it's yeah. it's everything. Um, and well, I, I, I'm, I'm, you're starting to see it more and more with people presenting that in media. Um, and I think, and, and this might sound weird, but it may be the best thing we can do for changing how many of our young people gets interested in studying math and science is how cool we make it look in the movies and how cool we make it look in TV because that sways people's decisions. And um, young people especially make their decisions on what they want to do in life based on how cool it's going to make them. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it always goes back to, like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor or a cop or something like that. You know, those things that we, we see more of on television or in the movies that we perceive of as cool automatically, like, shift our focus into, like, oh, I'm going to work towards being that or something. Um, and and it, obviously it changes as we get older, but we have that initial idea in our head based on what we've consumed as children. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, that would be great if, you know, you had like a cartoon that was just, you know, science oriented or, I mean, even shows like, um, Bill Nye, um, or Beekman's world. That. <laughs> that <was> the best. <laughs> uh, yeah. I used to watch Bill Nye watch. Did you ever watch Beekman's world? No, I didn't. Oh, it was, I think it was a Canadian TV show, but, um, they would show it Saturday mornings, uh, during the late eighties, I think well into the mid nineties or something like that. And uh, it was just, it was really uh, another one of those science shows that um, made things, I guess, more digestible for kids, you know? Uh, Awesome. Yeah, and it was great. Like, I loved watching it. Um, I would watch it with my sister and my mother and everything. And then I remember watching uh, reruns of Mr. Wizard on Nickelodeon. (laughs) Ah! So those kinds of things that just, uh, I guess, you latch onto and, and you go like, oh, now I get that concept now, like later on in life or something. Or someone like you comes along and explains it to me better. Because <laughs> I'm all for learning. I always want to keep learning. <laughs> so. Absolutely. You can't stop. No, I, my brain won't allow it. It's like the synapses don't stop firing. <laughs> um, so... What uh what I want to get to uh, uh going back to your your paintings and everything because you have a lot of um fandom as well uh has been incorporated into several of your pieces you have like Locutus of the Borg um Star you know just the um the Star Trek pin um John with prime numbers with prime numbers yay because uh, the prime directive yes <laughs> uh so uh, what was your I guess your earliest fandom then mean for me yeah for you oh and as in the fandom that I was imbibing um oh goodness so I actually got into watching Matt sorry watching tv pretty late Mm -hmm. um I lived in the forest and stuff so it took me a while um I guess the earliest one would have to be Twilight Zone I loved Twilight Zone Mm um I went and as soon as I saw that I couldn't stop watching it and then after that would be Stargate which one SG-1 Atlantis SG-1 okay (laughs) <laughs> no, I was a huge uh, uh, SG-1 fan and uh, really loved Atlantis as well, so it's always nice to feel meet another gator. Yay! <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know we were called gators. I, I love that. Some of them some of them are. I've seen different <laughs> things. Um, I know when uh, with the, the two actors from Farscape came over, they, they started yes. calling it Fargate. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh. Oh. So, favorite character on Stargate, then? Um, gosh, that's hard. Mm. I'd have to say, um, I love Colonel Carter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she's awesome. She's, um, this badass military lady who's, uh, uh, uses science and, um, experiment to solve a lot of the issues. And she's, uh, tends to be the level head within what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I love her, but I also love Daniel Jackson. Daniel Jackson is just <laughs> adorable. I love his brain. I love the trouble that he gets into when he gets, you know, all that data just pumped right into his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole Ascension thing. <clears throat> I'm just making lots of spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Stargate. Spoilers for Stargate. That's, <laughs> it's been off the air for how long now? <laughs> time, yeah. Uh, and then Vala. I love Vala. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite thing about her 
afterwards when they were doing the um, psychological tests. Yeah. And uh, she's like, I'm going to get this right. So she's studying and she's like, I'm, I'm going to get, I have to study to get the answers right. And I'm like, that's not the kind of test. You can't, you can't. There are no right or wrong answers. And uh, she's struggling with a question about the turtle who falls on his back, which is from, um, oh gosh, it's, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's from this other movie, uh-huh. Blade Runner. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the turtle is on his back. Um, and so, so you, you come up to a turtle and you see a turtle on your back and you don't help him. Why don't you help him? Uh, it's basically the question. Mm-hmm. You don't turn him back over. And she's like, you know, mulling over it. And she goes, why? Why don't I help him? And I think it was Daniel Jackson. And says, stop it. There's no right answer. And she goes, I know the answer. It's because I am also a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love her so much for that. For finding, like, a logical, correct answer for a psychological test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coming from a highly illogical character, by the way. Oh, yeah. She's, she's most certainly not a, a beacon of logic and reason. Well, and I think one of the things that I liked about, especially early SG one, was you know with uh, with Jack O'Neill that he wasn't, uh, you know, I guess what they would call a nerd. Um, he wasn't, you know, as smart as Carter or Jackson to a to a degree, but he had a, a different type of smarts. Like his was almost being able to. He was the audience surrogate, basically. So he would take those concepts and be like, okay, either. Explain it to me in a way that I understand, or let's just do it. Like, I don't care. <laughs> so you're saying he was SG-1's Watson? I believe he was. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, we have, uh, we come back to Sherlock. Uh, yes. Uh, now, you did the Arthur Conan Doyle version, uh, is your most recent piece, right? So it's uh, numbers and illustration of Sherlock Holmes, and my um, it's based off of Jeremy Brett's portrayal of Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. from BBC's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which came out in 1984. Ah, there we go. And is that like your is that your favorite version of him? Um, no. Um, so this was a custom piece. Someone oh. commissioned me to draw Sherlock Holmes, and his favorite version is Jeremy Brett. I wanted to come back. Did you have an argument about this? <laughs> well, no. I mean. Um, also, I love when people ask me to do things I didn't, wouldn't normally do. Mm-hmm. It, it means I'm, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to experience something new. And I ended up watching the entirety of the show. Um, I do lots of research. <laughs> this one involved watching lots of Sherlock Holmes, so it was pretty easy for that that part. You're just like, oh, no, stop me from having to do this <laughs> awful, awful research. <laughs> and I've read the books, um, and I, lo- I love Sherlock Holmes. I think he's absolutely wonderful. And um, Jeremy Brett's version, they stayed true to the stories really well. Um, they did a phenomenal job. I loved their Watson. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeremy Brett was basically how you would imagine Sherlock Holmes being. He, he took over that character and he was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I should tell you why this piece is so awesome because it's, it's special. Yes. So originally I was going to draw Sherlock Holmes with neurological data because my main focus is setting the brain and Sherlock Holmes' brain is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was having a hard time actually fitting him into that concept. And then um, I don't know how far into it, like two months into the research, I realized that what I needed to do was draw him as a puzzle. Ah. So this is interactive art. Um, it's um, you, you are meant to use it. The entire thing is drawn with puzzles, um, multiple kinds of puzzles. And given the tools that I give you, you can traverse the piece, investigate it, solve the puzzles, and as you do, you reveal a mystery. That is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it goes back into like the interactive portion of not only science but art as well because you know for you to to go to that extra length especially to to create your own mystery 
within a puzzle uh, uh, based off of one of the greatest detectives in fiction. Uh, it's like, that's going the extra mile there. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of, of prep and work on this, and I'm really happy with it, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a little bit nervous right now because people are currently playing it. Oh. Um, I'm also really excited because they, they're doing things right now that um, I can't say anything, but they've gotten some really fun parts of the puzzle. But um, <clears throat> there's a lot of research in it, which I can't tell you anything about. Yes. There was a lot of planning in it that I can't tell you anything about. Okay. Um, <laughs> I ended up working with a puzzle crafter, um, Richard Milena, and he helped me because I, I had all of these puzzles created and um, no idea of how to make it into a cohesive flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and he helped me make it make sense. And he added some as well. How did he do that? Or can you not tell me that either? (laughs) Can I tell you what? Uh, How did he help you do that? Or can you not tell that? (laughs) He made it make sense. So um, the the way that this this puzzle drawing works is, um, so those who completely solve the puzzle get a prize. And um, this prize helps um, make it, how to say this? It makes everything that you've done along the way make sense as well. Um, and the first three people to get to solve it, uh, get a special prize. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that the puzzle is designed is you cannot finish it without having, um, solved the majority of the puzzle. And so a lot of it is sort of meta, mm-hmm. um, and interlocked. And I have, to be, I have to be really careful now with what I'm saying, because no. I can't give you any hints. Damn it. There are no hints. Um, the tools, so you get, uh, you get a paper print. This is a playable, um, print. It's 30 by 22 inch paper print with mm-hmm. hand-torn edges, and you get a box of tools that you need to solve the art. Yeah. The tools being a magnifying glass, a book, and a sealed envelope. And <laughs> with those three things, it sort of starts you on your, your adventure mm-hmm. through the art. Wow. I mean, again, that that's like taking it to levels of, okay, we're going to do a murder mystery in this house today, and guess what? We're actually killing somebody. <laughs> So I didn't take it that far. Okay, yeah, obviously. I mean, Moriarty doesn't just show up at your house unexpectedly and be like, ha! Ah! Oh, gosh, that'd be the best prize ever. Wouldn't it just? Especially the one from uh, from Sherlock just showing up and be like, hello! Well, I do want to eventually do a Cumberbatch uh, puzzle, so mm-hmm. we can get him to do something. Oh my god, yeah. You should have him, like, record something, and then if you win it, like, you know, if you, if you get the prize, which sounds so very, like, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to me, it's just like the, I got the golden ticket! <laughs> it's adorable. Oh, yeah. I, I have my moment, so. Um, but, that, I mean, so, when you were originally commissioned this, uh, this, this particular piece, so this just kind of naturally came out of trying to figure it out, right? Sort of. So um, I do Puzzled Pint mm-hmm. as often as I can, which is this monthly event. So you go online and you solve the location puzzle. Mm-hmm. And when you solve the location puzzle, it tells you where Puzzled Pint is going to be happening that night. And it's always at a bar. You go to a bar, you drink beer, and you're presented a packet of puzzles. And oh. you solve them with your friends. Um, while drinking? While drinking, okay. which is great. Um, and you try to get the best time and you know, I'm not that great at it, honestly, Um, but it's a lot of fun. And I was talking to my friend, Chris, I think this is how I came about it. And I'm just not certain because it all sort of became, um, it all became a blur once I realized it should be a puzzle. There's just so much work that ended up going into it, but we were, we were discussing the Sherlock piece and, 
Um, and I, I think it was because of Puzzle Pint and talking to him, and he was one of my uh, teammates when I when I do Puzzle Puzzle Pint. Mm-hmm. And it just became clear that he had to be a puzzle, and that it had to be interactive, and that the puzzle had to be something that Sherlock Holmes himself would enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't make it that easy. I don't give you hints. And there are things that you can do that if you do incorrectly with the puzzle, mm-hmm. it's over. Oh, no. <laughs> um, that that's um, but that doesn't happen until pretty far along, so you will have had a, a good time playing the puzzle anyway. But this is meant to be something that not just anyone can do. You're meant to be able to deduce. You're meant to be uh, observant. You're meant to use his methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes you a while. Um, for a proficient puzzler um, and Sherlockian, it's, we've estimated it's three days of puzzle playing, of puzzling. Just nonstop um, or just kind of accumulated? <laughs> I mean, basically, when I mean, you sleep and you eat, but um, <laughs> you'd be devoting three days to puzzling. Mm-hmm. And that, that's uh, the amount of play. We did puzzle testing with quite a few people to make sure that nothing was broken. Okay. And um, well, that's our basic estimate. How was the, uh, the beta testing phase for that? <laughs> It was really interesting. It was so hard because I was sitting there watching them, and I'd have to have absolutely no reaction, just poker face. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're struggling with a concept, and I, I saw them, they're working on one of the puzzles, and they kept just stepping around the solution over and over and over again. And they kept telling each other, and someone would ask, do you think it's this? And they go, no, it can't be that. I'm positive it's not that. <laughs> and they kept walking right by it. I'm like, oh, my God, it's right there. And I just wanted to be helpful, but you couldn't. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I felt kind of evil because sometimes when I saw them struggling with certain pieces, I couldn't help but start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, it, it, which makes me horrible because these are my friends, too, that were puzzling. They are puzzle testing. Well, that's what friends are for, so you can at least <laughs> laugh maniacally at them as they try to solve your unsolvable puzzles. Oh, one of my friends got so mad at me. <laughs> she was so angry. Um, but... Then, you know, they figured it out eventually. And when they did, I had this just, you know, that's wonderful to see them actually solve it. I, I actually have um, one of my collectors uh, purchased the game as a foot, which is what this is called. It's called the game as a foot. Mm-hmm. And she's playing it. And she's been contacting me and telling me where she's at. Uh-huh. Um, and, oh, it's so exciting. She just recently got to a point that I, I can't tell you anything about it. Mm-hmm. But it's the, my first favorite part of the puzzle. There's okay. a few stages where... Uh, so I, I basically designed this um, in a way that if I had, it, that if I knew it was out there and someone else had drawn it, I would like it. Mm-hmm. I would like it as a as a as a puzzler, a bad puzzler, but a puzzler, <laughs> and that I would love it as a Sherlockian. So it's designed based on that. And she got to these these points that um, I know that me, if I had been playing it, I would have been just really excited about. Um, so I don't know. It's really great to to. Because so, I finished drawing the piece, but it's still an active part of my life right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I feel like I'm still. It's almost as though I'm still drawing it. I'm still making it because it's not done until people have finished solving it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and they're literally doing things with my art. They're literally interacting with it. That this um, this requires them to to be observant with it, to to really investigate it, to play with it. And they're mm-hmm. playing with my art which is something that um, I've never had before. I mean, my work, generally speaking, it does, um, it asks people to look, um, to look closer, and um, I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of the time it gets people to want to learn something that they haven't learned before mm-hmm. or to go back into a field they stepped away from. You know, it's, it's meant to, to engage them in their life, you know, once they see the piece for them to continue to want to study science, um, which is great when that works out. But this is mm-hmm. different. You know, this is hands-on. 
Is it um, something you're you're thinking about doing in the future with with other pieces, or um, is this just does does this just more feel organic to the piece itself? I don't know. I I kind of hope I do another one um, because this experience it was so challenging and so much fun, and I have so many ideas that I didn't use. Um, I, I do want to do a Sherlock version, a Cumberbatch version yeah. of the puzzle. And so depending on if people really like this and they play it and they don't want to kill me when they're done. Um, <laughs> That's very important. <laughs> <laughs> then I would love to do another one. And so, and I can say this, I think, the types of puzzles that I utilized in The Game as a Foot um, work within the world of Jeremy Brett's version of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Um, they live in that world, whereas the kind of puzzles that I have planned for the Carbatch version live in the modern worlds. Mm-hmm. So they're different. It's a whole different feel. And yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Like if you go any further, it's like I've said too much. I yeah, can't. But say- I have so many. I have a couple puzzles that I planned that only work in the Cumberbatch verse. I couldn't use it in Jeremy Brett verse, and I love them. They're they're so much fun. So I, I would I would love to draw them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I this this one you might not be able to answer then, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, what are the sort of puzzles then that work better in the Jeremy Brett world that, and which ones work better in the Sherlock world? In the I absolutely cannot answer that question. Damn it! <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I figured it was like the minute that question popped in my head, I was like that's probably just going to give like way too much information away. The, the best way I could answer that is the types of puzzles that are in that compose the game as a foot are um, they're Sherlockian and they're classic Sherlockian. Okay. Yeah, so the I would assume then the, the Cumberbatch ones would be a bit more I guess more, more modern puzzles or a bit more yeah, not I don't want to say advanced that's just that's wrong. Um, uh, uh, I mean, would modern be a better word of describing it? I suppose so. Yeah, modern revision. Okay, so yeah, because this uh, this is from someone who uh, watches Sherlock, but I've only read like a few of the stories, so I don't have as much of the mindset. Uh, for it, I just know that I I love snarky, arrogant characters. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're they're there in the um, in, in Arthur Conan Doyle stories. <laughs> yeah, I I keep the, meaning the to read them. There. Uh, one one of my friends is a uh, she's she's read all of the Conan Doyle books, so she'll always give me kind of like added information whenever we're watching Sherlock or something like that. She's like, oh, that's from that story or that so and so, whatnot. So I always rely on others when I have no information of my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I when I um, started working on this, I did more research into the original stories and Arthur Conan Doyle, and that alone was a really fun experience, especially learning about Arthur Conan Doyle and what inspired um, Sherlock Holmes and the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, Sher- so Sherlock Holmes is such a well-done character that he's basically real life. Yeah. He's basically not fictional. Um, the character himself, he has been awarded an honorary degree um, in chemistry from... Um, some wonderful British place, but he has an honorary degree in chemistry because he was so important in the history and advancement of chemistry, his fictional character. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what the kind of importance that he's had in, in our, in our lives. But he was also inspired by a real person. His name is Joseph Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Arthur Conan Doyle's mentor because Arthur Conan Doyle was a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually wrote the, um, he wrote Sherlock Holmes while he was in his office waiting for patients who never came. <laughs> um, so not successful as a physician, but you know, thanks for failing as a musician or as a physician because we got wonderful stories from it. Um, but his mentor had 
these, this wonderful power of, of observation. Mm-hmm. And it was important for his diagnostic abilities. So he would see a patient and just by looking over them for, you know, a minute or so, he'd go, oh, you've, you know, you've recently been on this part of the continent and you ate this today and, you know, you you have an old injury in your left hand or whatnot. And he would see it really quickly and run it through really quickly. And people were always impressed by this sort of magic trick, mm-hmm. um, which is what you see with Sherlock Holmes. And that's what defines Sherlock Holmes is his observation and deduction yeah. and his connection to logical and scientific thinking, um, which is important to note because before Sherlock Holmes, um, the idea of a detective in um, literature um, basically um, required coincidence. And it yeah. wasn't just literature. That was how you saw crime being solved in the real world. They um, they relied on coercion mm-hmm. um, and luck. They're just kind of hoping that they stumbled upon something. And uh, uh, yay, case solved, maybe? Uh, question mark. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, because I know with, um, with the detective story, because... Poe is usually uh, credited with creating the, the modern detective story. With Dupin, yeah. Yeah, and then, but Sherlock Holmes is often the, you know, the modern equivalent of the detective. And uh, and it's interesting because every TV show you see now with the, uh, the especially now with like Sherlock and, you know, Elementary, and then there was what, um, oh, what is it? Tony Shalhoub played him. Um, uh, Monk, that's it. Uh, oh, Monk, yeah. yes. Uh, Monk, like, I mean, just all of these, uh, detective shows, like, House is essentially Sherlock Holmes just uh-huh. as a doctor, uh, and so it's, it's very interesting how, like, all of these shows are basically taking that template and applying it in different ways, but showing the huge impact that, uh, Sherlock Holmes has had, not just in, uh, in fiction, but in real life, and, and I think that's just amazing. He actually changed, for, um, the world of forensics, um, he he was he played an important part. And we're talking about a fictional character, but but, but when the, the I'm sorry, when the um, original stories were out, the use of um, using fingerprints to um, find criminals was very rarely used. It was um, um, people looked at it with skepticism. They didn't use footprints very often whatsoever, and so they weren't using forensic data to solve crime. And in the story, Sherlock did. Um, to this day, when you take a forensic um, when you take forensics in school, you have to read a study in Scarlet. That's your the very first thing on your reading list is a study in Scarlet. That's how really? important it is. Yes, <laughs> that is really cool, actually. <laughs> well, and it shows Sherlock going through and, and investigating the room and investigating. I don't know. It's he was a remarkable character, and he showed not just law enforcement but the public what should be expected with um, criminal investigation that you shouldn't just be using um, guesses and um, force um, to find a criminal. You should be using the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting given that Conan Doyle was very into spiritualism as well. Like, I know nothing about that. So, I, cause, uh, so I've, I've watched a bunch of stuff on like Houdini, and Houdini was friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, apparently his wife believed herself to be a medium. Um, and, uh, and he believed her, like, he believed in that kind of, like, spiritualism stuff, which is, is such a huge contradiction to everything you see in Sherlock Holmes, uh, because he's a staunch, you know, he's a scientist, basically. He believes in what he sees in front of him. He's not a spiritualist at all. I mean, really. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, I can't, because this is not any information I've ever heard before. I don't know anything for or against this, um, but you have my interest. I'm going to have to go look into that. That is incredibly surprising. 
Um, I This might sound demeaning, but I have found that as people become um, more successful and famous, they tend to seek out concepts. I'm, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> they Basically, they don't like the idea of, of dying and, and their ego being over. That, um, yeah, that sounds about so right. <laughs> once you get really famous, you, the idea of going into spiritualism or more into religion, you, you see them doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was just one of those, like, really interesting contradictions that I saw where it's like, for this guy who wrote the most, like, logical character in fiction, like, of all time. That's so weird. Yeah, I mean, um... I, I can't get over that. <laughs> yeah. Here, let that, see, you know, seep into your brain for a while. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, no, it's fine. It's I didn't fine. want to ruin it for you. <laughs> you can't ruin Arthur Conan Doyle. He's, um... He's eternal. <laughs> <laughs> well, he basically is now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he he created the one of the most beloved characters in fiction. So it's uh, uh-huh. that if if that isn't an immortality, I don't know what is um, at this point. <laughs> and he tried to kill Sherlock off too. That's what happened with Reichenbach Falls. That was supposed to be the last Sherlock Holmes story mm-hmm. with the with the final problem. And um, I don't know if you know about this, but I thought it was just really cool and just, again, showed how important the story was to the public. But after the final problem, um, you saw people um, in... So first of all, the... Um, oh, gosh, what was it called? The Standard? No, the, the place where um, the magazine that The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes was published in, which I can't think of the name of. Okay. Um, <laughs> as soon as the, the final problem was published and it became clear that there were going to be no more Sherlock Holmes stories, they lost, like, twenty or 30,000 people subscribing to their magazine oh wow like immediately they go if, if Sherlock Holmes isn't in here we're not here <laughs> and, and then people just walked around wearing black bands on their arm in mourning oh wow that's it, I mean that's fandom that's fandom right there <laughs> Victorian fandom <laughs> that's amazing I just love that and I feel like so many of us now can relate to that that you know, that is really you know interesting and it's really relevant too. I mean, uh, yeah, how we get so invested in characters or in properties and everything. And I mean, even Sherlock itself. I mean, people are wholly invested in this version of him and yeah. him and Watson's relationship, the bromance and everything. And uh, you know, when when Mary came into the scene, people were like, "Oh, I don't know if we're gonna like her." It's just like. <laughs> They did interesting things with her, but she was intended to be there. That's in the original story. Oh yeah, yeah. I knew Mary was a was a character, but like, yeah, how they reinterpreted her. For... Oh, you mean people were just defensive, like you can't be in this world. <laughs> oh yeah, there's. I mean, there's always been kind of like that protective thing. Like, do you, I mean, do you watch Supernatural at all? Yes. Okay, so like, whenever a female love interest was introduced, you know, for Sam or Dean, there was almost like this backlash from the fandom, which was largely composed of women, obviously. Uh, just being all like, no, they can't have a girlfriend. I'm his girlfriend. That's ridiculous. I actually really find it annoying when a love interest is, love interest is introduced and then immediately um, destroyed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, that's 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 silly <laughs> it's it's old serial television as well like i um i used to watch like a lot of um or i still do uh, a lot of like 60s and 70s tv shows and that seemed to be a very big part uh, especially of like detective shows like i've, I've been watching starsky and hutch a lot lately <laughs> and uh, there was a thing where they would have a girlfriend in an episode and oh no she got killed because she's part of the mob or part of this other thing <laughs> so she's it was a demon. 
Oh, oh my God, that <laughs> happened <laughs> on Starsky and Hutch. Oh wow, <laughs> we're taking that into a different territory. <laughs> but yeah, no, on like Supernatural, the same thing. Like we introduce a, a female character, and then suddenly all the the women watching it don't like her because she's a girl, and it's about the guys and sitting at the car and everything. <laughs> so it's it's interesting how. Even as far back as, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. And I'm sure even further back, I mean, this kind of attachment to characters has has always been present because we, we need kind of that escapism and, you know, literature and art kind of allow us to have that. That's true. However, I'd have to say that a uh, more important reason why you didn't see female characters staying around so much in the original Arthur Conan Doyle stories is because they're steeped in sexism. Ah, yes, there's that too. <laughs> I, I love the stories, but sometimes it is difficult to get through because they are incredibly sexist. Um, mm-hmm. And they have some, this, this, it's an old story. Um, and you can, it is dated um, in the way that they view women and minorities. Yeah, the, those are the things that uh, when you go back and you read those kinds of uh, novels, especially from the 19th century. <laughs> Uh-huh. You're just kind of like, ah, okay, I'm just going to have to deal with that now. <laughs> so, um, I loved their revisioning of the woman of Irene Adler in, in Sherlock. She is so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was strong, if you saw The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes to the Germany Vet- Brett version, she was to be reckoned with, you know, and you could see the immediate impact that she had on Sherlock. He would never forget her. Yeah. He respected her and was in awe on her, of her. And it'd be the only woman that he ever had that response with. And, but the modern retelling of her, it was wonderful. It's smart as the new sexy. And that's just great. Yeah. And, and, and see, I, yeah, I liked, uh, what was, was it Eva Green who was playing her or? No. I am actually, I don't remember what her name is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like the actress who played, uh, Irene, um, but yeah, there was a there was a weird backlash, I think, even on that because Moffat's like version of strong female characters, some people have a problem with uh, making her a dominatrix. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some people were not happy with. I mean, I didn't have a problem personally because it seemed to make sense for the story. But uh, I mean, I can understand it. You know, she went from a thief to dominatrix now. <laughs> So yeah, I get it, but at the same time, it was a kick-ass story, and you you could buy why a mostly asexual character like Sherlock, like they've created him, at least in this version, I mean, was he in the book? He's was- always been asexual, okay. but he has, he's shown very little interest in, or no interest in one whatsoever. Okay. There's this wonderful story where Watson just breaks down who Sherlock Holmes is, and what he's proficient at, and what he's good at, and what he's bad at, and... One of the things that's noted is that except for the woman, he has never shown any interest in women whatsoever. And he does see them as the lesser sex. Um, mm. and, um, it's She's basically the only one. Every now and then you have a character who he sees as outstanding who's a woman. But um, I think that he never expects them to be, mm-hmm. which is where it's frustrating. They go, oh, this woman is actually showing honor. This woman is actually being intelligent. This is remarkable, something to remark upon because it's so very rare. It's like, Watson, um, note this in the journal. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a bit frustrating. Yeah. Um, but I just try to remember what when it was written. But yeah, he's always been asexual. He never really cared. Um, however, I have to say that Jeremy Brett, uh, from what I've learned, uh, that who um, portrayed Sherlock Holmes in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, was gay. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And so and this, I think, was done in 1984, and it still wasn't something that was um, widely about. accepted whatsoever. And he did come out a bit with it. He had a wife 
as well, mm. um, which is not that uncommon. But um, he came out, and he's one of the first people who came out as gay. And he was a remarkable person, too. Just as a side note, I mean, playing Sherlock Holmes is a tall order. Mm-hmm. You know, it requires a lot. And um, no, no matter what era you are currently in trying to portray him, it's it sort of brings you to the to the brink. <laughs> yeah, Because it, he's so strange. It's such a demanding role, yeah. And Jeremy Brett was ill while he was... Um, he became ill while he was performing it, and he continued to perform and to do an amazing, an amazing job despite the fact that he was basically dying. Um, and it was important to him to keep going, so he was remarkable. I'm gonna have to check this this version out definitely because uh, you're making me want to watch it. So. It's really good. It's really, really good. I love it. Oh, excellent. Um, well, we're we're over an hour now. Uh, which is fantastic, uh, it's, <laughs> considering it caught to, it was an auspicious beginning with the uh, technology. Um, but Sienna, thank you so much for coming on the show. I I really appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm just so glad to like talk numberism and you know science and now Sherlock Holmes and everything. This is amazing. Um, this is a lot of fun. Uh, so before we go, uh, where can people uh, find you online, like your website, Twitter, anything like that? Um, I'm at fleetingstates.com. You can also get there by going to siennamorris.com. Mm-hmm. My Twitter handle is Mrs. Sienna Morris. And Facebook, I'm facebook.com slash numberism. Okay. And if you see me locally, I'm at the Portland Saturday Market every Saturday and Sunday throughout the year between March and Christmas Eve. And I will be there for the festival of the last minute, which is the last seven days before Christmas. I'm there every single day. Sweet. Um, and do you have any uh, conventions coming up uh, that people should know about? I have nothing coming up right now. The only thing that is absorbing my my focus right now is the, the game as a foot. Okay. So <laughs> is making those collections, which will be available at Saturday Market. They're available online, and I have 34 of them left for the year. Oh, okay. Are you planning, like, if you do go to a convention, are you planning on taking ones that you can have on display for people to kind of, like, peruse, or is that the idea uh, of, like... Wherever, wherever I sell anything, I will have Sherlock Holmes with me until I run out. Um, it's limited, this, the first run is limited to 100, and mm-hmm. for 2014, I am prepared to make 50 of them. Awesome. Okay, you heard it here, folks. There's a limited run, so you buy it. You game is afoot. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, uh, on behalf of that girl with the curls, Sienna, uh, once again, thank you so much for showing up. Thank you so much. And uh, everyone. Have a great day.